We're going to be in Luke chapter 12 today. Uh, we're going to continue our journey with Jesus. So if you have a Bible, turn to Luke 12. We're going to start in, uh, in verse 35. So flip there. As you do, let me tell you this story. I was in the sixth grade, and my brother was in the third grade, and we were just at the very beginning of this moment when my folks would leave us home alone. I was old enough now to function as a semi-babysitter, and so they would go out for the evening, and we'd be home by ourselves. This had happened a couple times, and bear in mind, this is the days before cell phones and texting and keeping in touch, so you were kind of there by yourself with like an emergency number if something went wrong. And on this particular night when we were by ourselves, uh, my folks were going to be out late, and so my brother and I had this plan. Our living room had a ceiling that sort of sloped up on one side, and then at the very top, at the edge of the room, it came down sharply, and then kind of a lower ceiling into the dining room area. And that left this high ceiling with this lip kind of along the side. And my brother and I thought that would be the perfect place for a Nerf hoop. And so we pushed all the living room furniture aside, like my mom's like sugar shakers and my dad's paperweight collection, the end table, the you know, all the good, it's all shoved to the side and now we've got, like it's on for Nerf hoop. We can play horse, we can play one-on-one, we can shoot. It's like a Nerf hoop dream. Because when you play Nerf hoop, the ceiling's always getting in the way. Did anyone else here play Nerf hoop? Is it just me? Yeah, but not in this house. Now we got like a high Nerf hoop with no ceiling in the way and we're like right in the middle of a heated battle of one-on-one when all of a sudden we hear honk 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 as my parents car pulls in to the driveway way early now you're wondering why do they honk well my dad i don't remember exactly how this went down but my dad for some reason knew we were going to be doing this which (laughs) makes me question his parenting a a little bit Um, and he was trying to give us you know no texting he was trying to give us the warning like your mom will be in soon right don't get in trouble and don't get me in trouble so we frantically start throwing furniture back to where it goes like trying to rub out the you know the, the carpet dents that had been temporarily created when you move it and we get everything just set amazingly just as my parents walk in and my mom walks in like completely suspicious like walks in and she's just looking at us and we're both standing in the living room right as if that's not incriminating enough and we're kind of breathing heavy and she's like what's going on we're like nothing nothing What's going on here? And ironically, as she's sort of interrogating us and kind of giving my dad, why was your dad honking? And she's kind of looking at the boys and we're all, as she's interrogating us and looking around the room, I look up and notice that right above her head, still taped to the wall, is the Nerf hoop. We, we got everything set and right and back in place, but the Nerf hoop was still hanging there, completely um, incriminating us and convincing my mother of our guilt eventually when she noticed it. Well, this morning... Jesus is going to continue to uh, address us and give us instruction, and he's going to be talking to us about our readiness for his unexpected return. Luke chapter 12, 38 through four, or 35 through 48. Let's jump in this morning. As we, as we tackle this extremely intense and challenging and hope-filled passage, I want us to consider three things today. We're going to be talking about, um, in these verses, what does Jesus talk about? Like, what's his, his, his subject matter? What does he say about it? And then finally, what does it mean for us? What is Jesus talking about, what does he say, and what it means for you and me? So first of all, what Jesus is talking about. And to, to get at this, I want 
to scroll right down to the very middle of this passage and look at verse 40. This passage sort of works um, like an hourglass. Everything kind of points towards this middle moment. The middle moment is the climax. It's where, it's where Jesus explains what's happening. So it works towards verse 40, and then it also works away from verse 40. And here's what Jesus says in verse 40. He says, You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour... When you do not expect him, you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do do not expect him. And I want you to underline that phrase, Son of Man. Uh, Most of you know, or some of you might, that that this is a phrase Jesus uses to refer to himself. He doesn't make a lot of I statements. Instead, Jesus says, Son of Man, the Son of Man. He talks about himself in this way. He says, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And then he tells this paralyzed guy to take up his mat and walk. Um, uh, He says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Kind of letting people know who he is and the kind of authority he has as he interchanges with the religious leaders. And here's another instance. This is maybe my favorite one. This instance is at the end of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is on trial for his life. He's been beaten, and then he stands in front of the high priest, and the high priest says this to him. This is Mark chapter 14. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. You see, this is future language. This is, this is some day it's going to happen language. And then it says this. Here's the response of the high priest. He tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? You see... The reason this Son of Man language is so inflammatory is because if you were a Jew and you lived in Jesus' day and you heard someone, you heard Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man, your mind would instantly go to the Old Testament, specifically the book of Daniel, specifically chapter 7. And in this chapter... Like all the Jews knew, Daniel was having a vision. He was having visions of the future. And in verses 13 and 14, listen to what he says. He says, in my vision at night, and we'll we'll come back to that night component at some point. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one, like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. He, He went before God himself and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You see, son of man language is kingdom of God invading the earth language. It's messianic language. And it it points to this moment in the future when the kingdom of God will be fully realized. And every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And Jesus will come again to judge the world and set things right and make all things new. Jesus is talking here today about the second coming, about the consummation of his kingdom. You see, when he came the first time, it was the inauguration, the inauguration of the kingdom. But then now he says, there will be a day when the kingdom will be consummated, when it will be completely fulfilled, and I will come again. Well, what does he say? What does he say to us about this moment, this moment where where he, where Christ will come again? Well, first of all, Jesus launches in... 
with a story of a master who goes off to a, a wedding banquet and he leaves his servants at home. And one thing we need to understand uh, about this, this illustration that Jesus offers is that wedding banquets in this day and age, and everyone knew this, they were not just one day, they were not just one night affairs. If you were having a wedding banquet, a, a wedding celebration, it could go on for days, even weeks. And there was no scheduled end time. It was one of those sort of parties that ended when the party ended. Actually, the party ended when the food and the wine ran out. That's when the party was over, and no one really knew when that was going to be. So this is one of those moments where you're saying to your babysitter, we'll see you when we see you, right? Like, um, good luck with the kids, we'll be home sometime. Um, And Jesus says, be dressed and ready for service. The opening words of this passage are, be dressed and ready for service. And then he talks about this, this, this master who goes off to this wedding banquet. Um, And again, this dressed and ready for service was very familiar language as well. Everybody in that day and age um, wore the same thing for the most part. They all wore... Do we know what they all wore? They all wore these long flowing robes, right? It's like the one thing that I think modern artists get right about Jesus, that he actually did wear a robe. Everything else they get a little bit wrong maybe, but but they all wore these long flowing robes, which by the way, I think is awesome. Like they were always in their comfy clothes. I don't know why we ever went away from this, but they wore these long flowing robes that were great, except for the fact that if you're going to be real active, if you're going to engage in some like real hard work, this long flowing, flowing robe could really get in your way. It could be kind of like cumbersome and it get, got dirty real easy because it's down there by the ground. And so what they would do is to get dressed and ready for service meant that they would grab the edges, the corners of their robes, and they would pull them up, and they would pull them through their belts or their sashes, and they'd kind of hike, hike their robe up. And this is what it meant to be dressed and ready for service. This is a statement that says, you know, this is a picture that says, I'm ready to go. I'm, I'm ready to work. I am ready for whatever comes next. And so what Jesus is telling us here is be ready. Be ready for my return. And then he says, there are two reasons for this. There are two reasons why your readiness is so important. Go down with me to verse 37. This is the first reason. He says, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. He's going to pull the corners of his robe up in that moment. And he will have them recline at the table and will come and he will wait on them. Friends, This is an amazing thing. This verse should absolutely blow your mind. Do not miss what's being said here. Jesus is saying, be ready, be ready because there is a tremendous reward coming. Be ready because there is a time ahead for those who are ready and and if they're ready to receive it, when, as Tim Keller says, Jesus Christ himself will focus all of the immensities and infinities of his power to satisfy, heal, cleanse and gladden you. The God of the universe is coming to serve you. The one who created the heavens and the earth, the one who put the stars in their place, the one who gave the ocean, the oceans their boundaries, that God is going to serve you. You've never been served like this before. You've never had an experience like this before. Jesus says, there's something that's going to happen on that day. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be phenomenal. And you do not want to miss it. It's going to be a blessing beyond what you can even fathom. Be ready. Don't miss it. 
And I point this out because I think what's most easy for us to focus on in this passage, if we read it, is is the negative stuff. There's some punishment language here. There's some language of like servants being beaten and people being cut into pieces. And we'll talk about that later. And we kind of get this picture like, oh, Jesus is coming again. Like, ooh, I'm nervous. I'm scared. This is going to be a bad deal. But the message for Christ followers, for Christians, for those who have Christ in their life, is not that at all. This is a glorious day. This is a wonderful day. Twice in this passage, twice in these verses, Jesus says, truly I tell you. And that's a little phrase in Greek that just simply means this. Listen up. Listen to what I'm about to say next. Focus your attention on the words I'm about to speak. And both times after Jesus says, truly I tell you, he doesn't talk about punishment. He talks about the tremendous blessing for those who have Christ on the day of his second coming. See, friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, his, his second coming is not a day to fear. It's a day to long for. It's a day to anticipate. It's a day to keep before you with life-shaping hope because it will shape your life. The second reason Jesus says uh, to be ready as he unpacks these verses um, are in, is in verse 38 and 39. He says, even if he comes, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak, that's like, even if the, be ready for the, the, the manager when he comes home, be ready for the master when he returns, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak, but understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. Now Jesus sort of like shifts parables here. He shifts metaphors here. But one thing that you might find interesting is this. I do. In all of the times that Jesus ever talks about the second coming, if you, in fact, if you read about the second coming throughout the New Testament, and the New Testament talks about Jesus coming again over and over and over and over again, the pervading thought, the one thing that sort of runs throughout all those moments is this. The master always comes home at night. He always comes home at night. He never shows up at like 12 noon when you're eating lunch at the kitchen. He always comes at night. He always comes in the darkness. And here's the point. Jesus is saying, my return, when I come again, it is going to be unexpected. It is going to be set at a time when you will be sleepy, when there will be temptation to not be alert and not be ready, when it will be really, really tough to keep your eyes open. Have you ever experienced this before? You ever have one of those moments where you desperately need to or want to keep your eyes open? Maybe you're watching a show or you're driving late at night or you're talking to a friend or whatever it is and your eyes are so heavy that you're just battling and bat. You, you just cannot keep your eyes open as, as hard as you try. There's so much of a temptation to let them shut. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story here. I I had I was having lunch one time with a an old pastor, um, pastor of a church where I, I used where I was serving, and he had he used to be the pastor there, and we were getting together for lunch. And by the way, this is not Carl, <laughs> a different church, different pastor. But I had heard some stories about this guy, great guy, loved God. Um, we had become friends, and I heard some stories over the years about some moments with him. But I'd never experienced my experienced it myself until this day. We're sitting in a booth, like a booth at a restaurant, and so our faces are literally probably what like three feet apart, maybe. 
And we have lunch, and we're talking, and at one point he asked me a question, I began to answer, and I was talking about, you know, I think how things at church were going these days, and saying some things. And all of a sudden, as I'm talking to him, he falls asleep. He's like, really? I'm not kidding. He just literally falls asleep right in front of me. I didn't think this could really happen. People had told me it could happen. I thought it was exaggerated. No lie. And so I'm kind of looking around like, am I really that boring? Maybe I should quit the ministry. Um, Because I kind of talk for a living. Um, And so this is not going to be good. But um, no, seriously. And then at at some point I kind of start messing with him, like just making up stories. And then I was on the moon and aliens came like to see if he's like, no, I didn't do that. It really happened. It really happened. And then he kind of wakes up and just pretends like he's been listening the whole time, which was actually super awkward. Um, Enough of that. Here's the point. Jesus is calling us to readiness, readiness because he knows that a characteristic of this world, a characteristic of this age that we live in between the first and second coming is that we live in a time when it's real easy for people to get sleepy. It's real easy during this time, this era that we live in, for people to fall asleep spiritually. This is why Paul when he's speaking to the church at Rome, says, wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed Christ could come at any minute. Be ready. Don't get sleepy. Don't get apathetic. Friends, do you know what it means to be sleepy spiritually? Here's what it means. Here's a great definition I found this week. To let temporal reality affect us more than eternal reality. That's what it means to be sleepy spiritually. To let, to let the temporal, finite, limited things of this world begin to drive and control your thoughts and emotions and actions and life more than the eternal reality that Jesus is coming again. Church, let's just pause here. Ask this question. Got any places in your life right now where you find yourself a little sleepy. Where your attention has drifted into focusing on the temporal and not the eternal. Got any sleepy relationships, any sleepy financial situations or health situations or job situations, any sleepy challenges or struggles or issues, places where the temporal is real big, but the eternal has been pushed aside. You see, here's the thing about the second coming. It is extremely practical. This is just a practical doctrine. Sometimes we think about the second coming of Jesus, and it's this thing out there, it doesn't matter to me, it doesn't have any impact on my life, and yet, here's what Jesus says, this, this doctrine, this belief, has huge implications for your life. It can transform your life. One author I read this week uh, uh, likened it to eating certain kinds of food. She said this, she said, I can just look at certain kinds of foods and see my hips growing. She said, why should I even eat spaghetti? Why not just apply it directly to my hips? She goes on to say, even looking at chocolate makes my face break out. Here's the point. The second coming is real similar. The Bible, when it speaks about the second coming of Christ, it literally says this. This is a day so glorious that just yearning for it will transform you into the likeness of Jesus. You don't even have to eat it. You don't even have to experience it. Just knowing it's coming, just intentionally looking forward to it, has amazing, awakening power. Finding yourself sleepy 
shine the light of the truth of the second coming of Jesus onto any one of those sleepy situations. And friends, you'll wake right up. All right, much more to say here, but let's keep moving. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? Here's the second half of of this interchange, this text. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling us this parable? Are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, remember that, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, My master is taking a long time in coming, and he then begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers or the unfaithful. All right. To close out this section, Jesus addresses this question from Peter about who this parable is for. And Jesus graciously answers, as he often does, with another parable, which I'm sure Peter's thinking, just tell me straight up. But Jesus, always wanting us to think and own it and ingest it, not just take information, right? Um, Again, to, to grasp Jesus' answer, we have to know a few things. In the ancient world... The wealthy didn't just have a servant or a few servants. They had an entire slew of servants. They had a hierarchy of servants. And the highest rank for any servant was the position of manager. The manager was the servant who oversaw all the other servants. And listen to this. The primary job of the manager was to reflect the kind of character the master had. To carry out his business and to make sure the other servants did the same thing. You see, in verse 44, Jesus says, there's good news for the faithful manager, right? One who's reflecting the character of the master, one who's being transformed and conformed into the image of the master, into the image of Christ. If if you're that kind of manager, then this is going to be a great day. The second coming is going to be a thrilling day. But then as Jesus has done throughout this entire section of Luke that we've been in here uh, lately, Jesus offers a warning. He says, But suppose the servant says to himself, My master is taking a long time in coming. Suppose it just doesn't seem like he's coming back anytime soon. Suppose it just starts to feel like maybe he's never coming back, or he is coming back, but that seems like a far-off reality to me. Suppose the second coming isn't something that feels real personal to us. You see, in the same way, friends, that hypocrisy and image management and wealth and worry can derail us from a life with Christ, so too the weight the length of time we live in this world can erode us and pull us away from the faithful life that we are called to live by God. And then Jesus describes what it looks like to be an unfaithful manager. And what we find is that this is a manager who has forgotten his role. This is a manager who has forgotten who he's serving. This is a manager who started to think that he's the master. He's using the master's stuff. He's using the master's servants, not for the master's good, 
but for his own personal pleasure. He's made his life not about serving the master, but about serving him. Now, pause. I pause here because one mistake I think we can make when when we're reading a parable like this is to say to ourselves, you know, hey, I, I don't beat anybody. It says, you know, this... This bad master, he beats the servants, right? Um, and you're thinking, well, how could this apply to me? I don't beat any. I haven't beaten anyone in a long while. I hope you're saying that. Um, and 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 then he said, and then maybe some of you are thinking, I don't even have servants. I've never had servants. I will never have servants, right? So how does this 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 passage relate to me? See, I think the larger principle here might be this. Because I think it does relate to us. This passage is so much for us, the 21st century American church. Here's the question. How do we use the authority and influence and position and power and knowledge that we have been given by God in this world? You see, this... This, this servant, this manager, he's been given some things by the master and now he's expected to steward them. We too have been given some things by God and now we are expected to steward them. Friends, do we have an unwavering and firm grasp on the fact that everything we have, everything, is really just his stuff put under our care? Do we understand that this word that we study, this gospel that we preach and have received, that it has been entrusted to us and given for us to steward under his care. Friends, let me say this just as plainly as I possibly can, because I think this is what Jesus needs us to hear today. Everybody in this room is living 100% completely off of the gifts the master has given you. Whether you know it or not, whether you accept it or not, whether you believe it or not, your talents, your health, your brain, your personality, opportunities, money, stuff, and relationships, all of it is his. And the question is, are you a faithful or unfaithful manager? The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. At an hour he is not aware of, he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers, with the unfaithful, with those who never trusted him or loved him or served him. Cut him to pieces, literally in Greek means cut in two. Um, And in Jesus' day, this was a very popular figure of speech. It simply meant you were going to get a severe punishment. In our day, this would be like a, a kid you know, doing something wrong at home, like, you know, breaking a lamp or, or you know, coloring on the walls and, and the brother or sister turning to them and saying, mom is going to kill you, right? Now, they don't literally mean that mom is going to kill you. What they're saying, though, is you're in big trouble. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If you're this kind of manager, you're in big trouble, And now Jesus will finally get around to answering Peter's question directly. And he says this. He says, yes, Peter, yes. This parable, this story, this truth is for you and for everyone, but not in the same way. It does not apply to everyone in the same way. He says, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment, will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. 
And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. How much have you been given? How much of the master's will have you been given access to? In this sermon alone, friends, I would argue that we have enough information to be held very highly accountable. And so as we close, I want you to hear what I think is maybe the most important message of of this passage. Jesus is coming. Be ready. He's coming. It's certain. Timing may be uncertain, but his return is certain. Someday he will come. Something, someday justice will reign. Someday things will be made right. Someday he will judge the world. The question is, are you ready? Are you managing what he's given you in a way that displays that you are going to be one of his? And at this point, I just need to say this. I feel like we say it almost every single week, but it is so important. It is so central. It's the gospel. And I'll start it with a question. I need you to notice what comes first in this passage. What happens first in these words of Jesus? Receiving or doing? Receiving. It's receiving. Hear it again. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. You see, the message of today is not work really hard to be ready. Work really hard to be a good manager. And if you do a good enough job with all the stuff God has given you, then someday he'll accept you and the second coming can be a really good day for you. But if you blow it, Uh Uh-oh. You see, if that's the truth, all of us should leave here really nervous. There is no cause for joy or celebration. That is not the message, friends. This is not work so diligently so that you can get. It's receive and rely and trust in God so that you are. Don't work to be ready. Trust God so that you are a person who is ready who lives in a constant state of readiness. Way back in verse 35, Jesus said, be dressed in a way that you are ready. Be dressed in a way that you are ready. And the question is, then what should I be wearing? What do I need to be wearing on that crucial day when he will come again? Your own good deeds? Wearing those, will that work? A list of all the things you've done in life to try and earn God's favor? Is that going to work? No. If we go way back to Romans where Paul says, you know, wake up church, wake up, be ready. Christ is coming again. It could happen at any moment. He goes on from there and just a few verses later, he tells us exactly how to be ready. He says, here's what you should be wearing and focused on when that day arrives. Hear these words, Romans 13. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible says the way that we get ready, the way we become managers who reflect the kind of character and carry out the business of the master is to clothe ourselves with him, to unite ourselves with him, to allow our sinful, selfish nature to be crucified with Christ so that it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. Friends, here's the picture. The picture isn't, I'm going to try really hard and bring some stuff to the table so that maybe God will accept me and maybe Jesus will unite with me and I'm good enough, then he'll like offer me this garment and clothe himself with me. No, that's not how it goes at all. 
In fact, I, I read this week just a, a wonderful picture of how this actually plays out. It's like this. It's like you've been a lazy, awful slime ball your entire life who's got nothing who is nothing, and then all of a sudden you meet this amazing, wonderful, hardworking, diligent, beautiful woman who through her focus and work and effort has amassed, and and all of her diligence has amassed a great amount of wealth and prestige and status for herself. And she agrees to marry you. And as soon as you marry her, as soon as you unite your life to hers, all of a sudden, guess what? You are now wealthy too. Right? Your lives are inextricably linked. And what she has, you now have. That's the gospel. Jesus comes with everything and we have nothing. And he says, I'm going to offer it to you. Unite yourself with me. Even though you have nothing, come and freely take on what only I can give you. And that's everything. You see, this is why the Bible says, clothe yourselves with Christ. We must be united with Christ because that is the starting place of being ready. Anyone sleepy this morning? Anyone focused on the temporal? Anyone sort of sliding away from a life that is devoted to and focused on the eternal realities of following Jesus? Anyone here ever wrestle with that besides me? Anyone here ever find themselves, themselves managing, managing their spirituality, managing their life in a way that says, I think the stuff's mine now. This is really just about me and it's not about the kingdom. See, this is a passage where Jesus challenges us and warns us and invites us to come back to what it means to follow him. Or maybe today this is a passage that challenges you to say, maybe I've never united myself with Christ. Maybe I've never clothed myself with the Lord Jesus. Maybe when we talk about being ready and I think about that day of the Lord coming, it creates nervousness and anxiousness and uncertainty in me and that is not what God wants for you. It is not the spirit he wants you to have. See, friends, this morning, right now, just like at any time, God says, come to me. Come be one of my kids. Come clothe yourself with me. Come unite yourself with me. Come be crucified and make me the master of your life. Are you tired of being your own master? Are you tired of being a manager who's pretending to be a master? You see, if you want to make Jesus Lord, he'll always receive you. And it's not just a transaction. It's just not a moment where you decide to say something or do something to get something. It's a way of saying, Lord, I want to live a new way. I want to experience a new reality, a new reality that will transform me now and then forever into eternity. And so friends, this morning, I just want to give some of you, if there's anyone here who doesn't know what it means to be united with Christ, who's not clothed with Christ, who doesn't have the excitement and assurance of hope and glory when he comes again. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. So we're going to close this morning in this way. I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads, close your eyes. If you want to make Jesus Lord, if you want to experience the saving grace that only he can offer, just pray this prayer with me and pray it in your own words and don't pray it to me. Pray it, just say it directly to God. He hears you. God, I'm tired of focusing only on this world. It just keeps coming up empty and I'm, I'm asking, Lord, that you help me to be a faithful manager, someone who sees 
everything I have and everything that I am as a gift from you. And so I turn to you and yield to you and receive you. I clothe myself with you. I, I accept the reality that I'm nothing without you and that you died on the cross and that you rose again. That you gave your life that I might have life. God, I just, I received that, that free gift of salvation and ask that you come in and begin to change me and transform me and conform me to a person who has your character. Father, I pray this morning for anyone who prayed that prayer, whether it was for the first time or for the thousandth time. We long to be a people, Lord, who, who look more like you, who are clothed more fully in you, and who look forward to the day when you will come again with anticipation and joy. Thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you for always being with us. Thank you for your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.